When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In October 1942, uh, George Patton wrote a friend that all his life he'd wanted to lead a lot of men in a desperate battle. And now at age 56, he was going to get his chance. And he wrote, at 56, one can go with equanimity because there's nothing much that one hasn't done. He was ready, in effect, to go and fight his war. And as he told Franklin Roosevelt before he left, I'll either come back a conqueror or a corpse. outstanding American commander in the liberation of Europe in 1945. Old Blood and Guts, he was called, a tough, ruthless campaigner whose family fought and died in military battle for more than 200 years. And in World War II, George Patton would become a legend in American military history. George as a boy heard many stories of his ancestors, some of whom fought for Bonnie Prince Charlie, some of whom fought in the American Revolution, uh, and many of whom fought for the Confederacy in the Civil War. These came to him as a boy in the form of stories, fireside chats, and he absorbed them and was inspired by them and remembered them all his life. In 1904, George Patton entered West Point Military Academy, and for the next six years, he displayed characteristics which he called visible personality. He exhibited characteristics of confidence, apparent arrogance, um, haughtiness, swagger is one term that we could use, but it's important to remember that these were created he imagined that he needed to have these attributes to compensate for what he determined as a young boy were attributes of weakness and self-doubt. So it's important to remember that what we see of Patton as the public man, the public uh, gunslinger in effect, is a creation that he began as a little boy and carried through to his last days. By the outbreak of World War II, Patton had risen from West Point cadet to commander of the 3rd Cavalry. He showed great foresight in his comprehension of tank and armour assault warfare, tactics which the Germans had already mastered as Blitzkrieg. 
Patton was then ready and prepared when uh, the call came for the United States to fight Germany to begin what was really a, a massive redirection of funds and effort in the American army uh, from the primitive horse cavalry to the mechanization of tanks. In December 1941, the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor. American President Franklin Roosevelt had this to say. With confidence in our armed forces, with the unbounding determination of our people, we will gain the inevitable triumph, so help us God. A month later, General George Patton took command of the 1st Armoured Corps and prepared them for battle in North Africa. The plan was for Patton to command a ground force of 24,000 soldiers against the Vichy French forces in Morocco. They landed on November the 8th, 1942. The resistance was not great. Uh, he manoeuvred his troops in, he got them ashore. Uh, really, I think it was a logistical problem. This was a unblooded American army. They had not, the soldiers had not heard shots fired in anger, had not suffered casualties. Uh, he brought them to the shores and got them through their, their early engagements, which again were not uh, entirely vicious, uh, and was able to claim an early victory and a, a confidence booster for the American forces. By July 1943, Patton had switched command to the 7th Army. In that month, he led them in the invasion and rapid capture of Sicily. And in this rare recording, Patton addresses one of the Allied generals on the hills over Messina. General Truscott, I appreciate very much your asking me to accompany you in entering the city which you have so gallantly captured. I cannot find words with which to express my admiration of your drive and enthusiasm, nor to express my appreciation of the magnificent fighting qualities and superhuman endurance of the soldiers of the 3rd Division. I certainly thank you and congratulate you again. He also, of course, on Sicily, made a great error in which he, while touring an army hospital, uh, came across two uh, U.S. casualties whom he imagined to be malingerers, cowards, as he would have said. They were not wounded physically, uh, but they were claiming battle shock. And he was so infuriated by this that he slapped them, and uh, first at one hospital and then another soldier later. And this was to be pivotal in his career because it almost resulted in his uh, downfall and his sacking by Eisenhower. There was, of course, a, a storm of controversy back home. A terrific storm of controversy because these were the American boys and no one liked the idea of uh, an American officer, a general, physically slapping a soldier. In today's army, that's an instant court-martial offense. In those days, Eisenhower uh, was able to cover it up, in effect. It was his decision not to publicize it. He thought Patton was more valuable uh, on his staff than sent uh, in disgrace back to the States. However, a couple of months later, it was publicized finally by some American reporters, and it was uh, created a firestorm of anger and indignation. Uh, Congress uh, passed a few resolutions uh, condemning Patton and calling for his uh, ouster. And it was really through only Eisenhower's good graces, Eisenhower's forbearance, that Patton was retained 
uh, although he was uh, lifted from field command for several months afterward. George Patton's campaign in Sicily was soon tarnished by a second major scandal, this time concerning the execution of captured German soldiers. 79 prisoners of war had been shot by American personnel, and Patton's critics alleged that his sabre-rattling and bloodthirsty commands had sanctioned these killings. Patton denied it publicly, and this denial was supported by many of his staff and many other uh, general officers. Uh, it's interesting to note that during the investigation, he wrote a private letter home to his wife saying, uh, in effect, that he did know about them and didn't see why anyone was making such a big deal about it, because after all, in the Pacific Theater, American soldiers, he said, were killing many more Japanese soldiers than any uh, Americans were killing Nazis in the European theater. So it's a bit of a, of a back-channel admission, I think we can say. At any rate, Patton survived this investigation, was cleared, and seemed still to be the front-runner to command the upcoming ground forces in the invasion of Normandy coming up in June 1944. This is the BBC Home Service. Here is a special bulletin read by John Snag. D-Day has come. Early this morning, the Allies began the assault on the northwestern face of Hitler's European fortress. The date was the 6th of June, 1944. The Allied forces landed in Normandy to begin the liberation of Europe. General Eisenhower made this address. People of Western Europe, a landing was made this morning on the coast of France by troops of the Allied Expeditionary Force. This landing is part of the concerted United Nations plan for the liberation of Europe. On July the 6th, George Patton arrived in Normandy in command of the American Third Army. Most of his soldiers were young recruits in their teens or early 20s. And in the following 10 months, over 21,000 of these soldiers would die in action. The paratroops are landing. They're landing all around me as I speak. They've come in from the sea and they're fluttering down, red, white and blue parachutes fluttering down and they're just about the best thing that we've seen. On August the 1st, the Third Army became operational. Patton scored an immediate success with a dramatic breakout from Normandy, followed by a sharp cutting movement through Brittany and across France. It was to become a classic manoeuvre in modern warfare. This campaign was really Patton's great moment. Uh, the earlier ones had been successes, namely Northern Africa and Sicily, but this was a, a much grander stage uh, against the, the true German Wehrmacht and he was in the glamour position of leading a breakout, getting lots of mileage, lots of territory across the center of France. And this was headline stuff. And he really uh, had his moment of, of publicity, of final uh, uh, achievement as he saw it. And he even imagined that things were going so well that the war might even be over in a few weeks if he could just have his head and go right to Berlin. By the winter of 1944, the rapid advances had ground to a halt in western France. It was bitter weather, and by now the war had become a grinding battle of attrition. Advances were made a yard at a time, and the morale of the troops sank in the winter mud. Patton was taxed not so much with tactical maneuver as his responsibility, but as he said, by convincing people who think they are beaten that they are not beaten because these very, very difficult and, and bloody and costly battles in Western France were depleting his men's morale. And he just went from spot to spot in the, across his wide, wide front of activity 
in effect inspiring his soldiers with that old method of his visible personality, exhibiting confidence, visiting swagger, disdain of enemy, which he didn't feel inside. He had great doubts about how all this would be accomplished, but he imagined that he had to behave that way so that his men would be inspired to continue through this grinding difficulty of house-to-house, city-to-city fighting in western France. On December the 9th, Patton wrote in his diary that he suspected the German army was building up for one final push. And it came on December the 16th with a massive German attack through the heart of the Allied front. Patton reacted with astonishing speed and the resulting Battle of the Bulge became his finest hour. The battle in the Ardennes, the Ardennes Wood of December 1944 was a terribly costly battle. He characterized it later from the German standpoint as the last flop of the of the sport fish before it dies. And this was the, the Wehrmacht's last great commitment and they threw everything at the Allied forces. And the town which really gummed up the works for the German advance was uh, the American uh, holdouts in Bastogne in France. And they did not yield to the German advance and they became a kind of thorn in the advancing German front. And it was given to Georgie the assignment of moving to the north and relieving Bastogne. And he attacked it with everything he had. He got four divisions up there in three days when it was thought that no one could do that in 30 days through this horrible winter weather. And in accomplishing that and relieving Bastogne and in effect breaking the southern flank of the German advance, he stemmed that advance. He knocked back the, uh, the counterattack of the German forces and in effect uh, to save the day is not putting it, I think, too greatly. He really earned his pay that day. By the beginning of 1945, Patton's Third Army had become the largest field army in American history. It contained 30 divisions and more than half a million men. By March, his troops were sweeping across Germany, and the battle was on to be the first across the River Rhine. Patton was determined to be the first to cross the Rhine. I think it's fair to say not entirely for tactical reasons. I mean, there would, that would be a real publicity coup. Whosoever army got across first was going to get the great headlines, and he was bound and determined to be that man. Uh, he, to, to even to the degree of actually stealing forces and supplies from other armies who were, who were trying to do the same objective, uh, he did, in fact, gain it. I think he was beaten by a day by one other American uh, unit from another army, but Patton's uh, ability at publicity and simple um, attention-grabbingness that he had got all the credit. And as if to sort of cement that, uh, that credit, he um, took it upon himself to urinate in the, in the Rhine to sort of indicate his dis- disdain of all German waters, wherever they may be, and to add his own waters, perhaps, to the stream. In that same month, March 1945, George Patton's image was again tarnished by scandal. This time, the scandal involved his son-in-law, John Waters, who had been captured by the Germans during the North African campaign. Following reports that Waters was imprisoned 40 miles away, behind enemy lines at Hemmelberg, Patton decided unilaterally to set him free. Hearing rumours that Waters was there... Uh, Patton undertook to send a small task force of a few tanks and 300 men uh, on, a, on a spearhead through German forces toward Hamelburg to relieve this concentration camp and save Johnny as he, as he knew him. It was a complete disaster. It was a complete disaster. The task force was wiped out, nine killed, all the rest captured or wounded, all of the equipment lost, and uh, the press, when it heard of this, took Georgie to great task for having impetuously risked 
the lives of his soldiers simply to save the life of his son-in-law. And did he regret this as a, a tactical disaster? He called it his greatest mistake of the war. He said, however, not that he shouldn't have undertaken this rescue mission, but that he should have supplied it better and sent a larger force that would have been better prepared to defend itself. Since August 1944, another scandal was dogging Patton, this one involving his mistress, Jean Gordon. Jean was Patton's half-niece, a young woman of great charm and intelligence who had been involved with Patton since before the war. However, Jean Gordon had arrived as a Red Cross worker attached to the Third Army. And while in Germany, she was Patton's constant companion, entertaining generals or state dignitaries, and always in his company. George Patton denied it, of course, uh, and Jean Gordon never uh, admitted it one way or another, but we can say for certain that George's wife Beatrice believed that something untoward was going on. And we can, of course, say as well that Jean Gordon was with him at his moment of triumph. Jean Gordon, by virtue of being with Third Army and being with Patton, was there at the great moment of public acclaim, which finally came to Patton in the heady days after the Battle of the Bulge. And that must have grated with his wife back home. This, of course, was terribly painful to George's wife Beatrice because she had supported him through the years of their marriage, through many of the dark days between the wars when he felt his career would come to naught. And rather than being where in her what she felt to be her rightful place at his side at his moment of great acclaim, she now was many thousands of miles away, and her rival, Jean Gordon, was there in her stead. By the spring of 1945, Patton's Third Army had reached hell. Words are inadequate, he said, to express the horror. He was describing the first concentration camps to be liberated by the Allied forces. Here, over an acre of ground, lay dead and dying people. You could not see which was which, except perhaps by a convulsive movement or the last quiver of a sigh from a living skeleton too weak to move. General Patton the toured the camps, witnessing the evidence of brutality, mass starvation, torture and murder. For the first time, the unprecedented level of human atrocity perpetrated by the Nazis was opened to public scrutiny. And the public back home were informed of the discoveries in reports such as this. There was no privacy, nor did men or women ask it any longer. Women stood and squatted, stark naked in the dust, trying to wash themselves and to catch the lice on their bodies. Babies had been born here, tiny, wizened things that could not live. When Patton's forces Mother, overran and liberated some concentration camps, he immediately went to visit them with his staff and was thoroughly appalled, as anyone would have been. Uh, he immediately notified Eisenhower that the horror of these institutions defies description. Uh, his first order was that the local German townspeople around the camp were to be paraded through and forced to look at the uh, stacks of emaciated corpses that were discovered there. Uh, they were horrified, they wept, and he was very pleased that the mayor and the mayor's wife of the local town immediately went home and committed suicide. He thought this was quite justified. This is the BBC Home Service. Here is the news read by Frederick Drysworth. We begin by taking listeners over direct to one of our transmitters in Germany where Frank Gillard is waiting to speak. East and West have met. At 20 minutes to 5 on Wednesday afternoon, April the 25th, 1945, American troops of General Bradley's 12th Army Group 
made contact with Soviet elements of Marshal Konyev's 1st Ukrainian Army Group near the German town of Torgau on the Elbe. The meeting of the Russian and American allies in April 1945 signalled the last days of the war. Patton's 3rd Army had completed its final advance, driving across Germany and into Czechoslovakia. Here, in April, he was ordered to stop, just 50 miles west of Prague. The politics of this decision to force his stop at Pilsen in western Czechoslovakia annoyed him on several counts. First of all, he felt that that was conceding territory to the Red Army that he believed, and as it turned out rightly, that the uh, Red Army, under Stalin's directive, would not relinquish. Uh, on the other hand, it also galled him because his own continuing personal advancement, his own continuing uh, rise, as he felt, in, in accomplishment, in, in, in achievement, in gaining yet one more victory was denied him. As he wrote his wife, he said, I uh, feel that the end is near and I just may not want to survive another victory. This is London calling. Here is a news flash. The German radio has just announced that Hitler is dead. I repeat that. The German radio has just announced that Hitler is dead. The death of Hitler was announced by the BBC on the 1st of May. Less than a week later, the war was over, and President Truman addressed the American public. This is a solemn but a glorious hour. I only wish that Franklin D. Roosevelt had lived to witness this day. For George Patton, however, the end of the war brought to a close the drama of conflict, the engagement of battle. The most fulfilling chapter in his life and career had suddenly ended. He dreaded, truly dreaded, the post-war period. He felt that in inaction, in inactivity, he would again perhaps begin to self-destruct. I say again because, of course, between the wars, uh, he had drunk a bit too much. He had gotten short with his wife and family, and he had, uh, it seems, uh, developed uh, some extramarital affairs, all in a kind of uh, self-destructive, bored, tedious, and disappointed uh, enactment of what he saw to be a failure. In a way, he would have been better off to have died fighting, I suppose. I believe that's so, and I'm sure that Patton believed it so. He long had said that a true soldier should die by the last bullet in the last battle of the last war. A man, therefore, could go out in glory, and also he could avoid, as Patton saw it, the letdown of any post-war disarmament period. Unfortunately, of course, the last bullet missed him. The last bullet did miss him, and it meant that the last chapter of Patton's life would be very difficult indeed for him. The German state was completely dismembered today and deprived of a central government for the first time since Bismarck in a simple but very effective ceremony in the bar of the Hamburg-America line of Patria off Flensburg. By the, the end of the war in Europe, George Patton was age 59. He had hoped to continue fighting in the Pacific, where the war would last for another four months. But his request was turned down. Instead, General Eisenhower made a military governor of the Third Army sector of occupation in the southeast of Germany. He was disappointed, first of all, because it meant he wouldn't be fighting. He'd hoped to go to the Pacific to fight the Japanese. Uh, also, he was disappointed because, quite astutely, I think, he realized that he was not emotionally or psychologically cut out for that kind of work. As a governor, rather than be a frontline fighter, he was going to be charged with really three responsibilities. The first was to take care of the German populace, the shattered German populace of the occupied territory. Secondly, he was supposed to denazify the German bureaucracy, remove from their positions any civic functionaries who had been Nazi party members during the Third Reich period. His third responsibility was to 
care for the liberated inmates of the concentration camps in his sector. Now, if you just take the issue of denazification, he was quite concerned about that, wasn't he? He felt that to denazify completely the German bureaucracy would hamstring the bureaucracy, would make it unable to perform that first responsibility of taking care of the German people. In other words, if you remove the men and women who run the railroads and who run the utilities in the small towns, then how would those services be provided? Was there a certain pro-German, pro-Nazi sympathy there? Many in the press and many uh, American observers felt that Patton did exhibit a pro-German uh, sensibility, and I believe that's true. He did for one reason. He wanted or dreamed that Germany could be rapidly rebuilt and become now an American ally, an ally really of, of all, all of the uh, Western powers, in what he hoped to be a continuing war against the Red Army under Stalin. At the same time, of course, he was developing a certain antipathy towards the Jews uh, who were coming out of the concentration camps. Patton came from a social structure in the United States which, in which anti-Semitism was endemic. Uh, he uh, carried himself as a man who thought he was better than most people. This is really his most unpleasant characteristic, I think. And although initially upon liberating the concentration camps in which so many were Jews, he exhibited what we would think of as very sympathetic and natural reactions of horror and disgust, he became rather cavalier about the plight of the Jews later during the occupation period, specifically uh, autumn of 1945. He almost disregarded the suffering that had particularly befallen the Jews and felt that to show them any favoritism or to show them really any untoward concern at all was not justified. While serving as military governor, Patton became anxious, depressed and disillusioned with a new regime of demilitarization and peace. The magic was gone and was now replaced by an ominous foreboding that something tragic was about to happen. In the last month of his life, he wrote uh, his wife uh, a couple of times referring to um, what he felt was his coming end. He said, I, I fear I may be nearing the end of this life. This kind of talk, um, this kind of psychic attunedness was part of the Patton family, really. You could go back a hundred years uh, in some of the family letters and find um, relatives um, speaking of psychic experiences, um, speaking of second sight. Um, there was an instance of one uh, woman foretelling the death of her children, another woman foretelling the death of her husband in battle some weeks before it happened. Georgie apparently inherited this trait and uh, uh, this kind of psychic um, awareness attributed, I think, as well to his um, sense of reincarnation and his belief in reincarnation. Uh, several times uh, between the wars, he wrote of uh, being struck, being uh, hit with flashbacks of former lives, always in military settings. He uh, pictured himself fighting for Hannibal, uh, with the Carthaginians, that is, against Rome, fighting for Napoleon uh, uh, on, the, on the horrible march back from the defeat at Moscow. He uh, imagined fighting in the Civil War and dying. He imagined um, fighting uh, as a Viking. All of these were very grim, very bloody, and I think they emboldened him and gave him a belief that if he'd done it before, faced death before, died before, he could face death and die again. George Patton was scheduled to return to America on December the 10th, 1945. He was now aged 60, but on the day before departure, a minor accident in his Cadillac limousine would drastically change that plan. On December 9th, he decided to go pheasant hunting 
with a couple of members of his staff and while driving through Mannheim, Germany, his uh, vehicle was blindsided by a oncoming American truck. All other members of the touring car in which Patton was riding were fine, exhibited not a scratch, not an injury at all, but Patton's neck was broken and uh, he was paralyzed from the neck down. Now he was taken by ambulance to Heidelberg. He was immediately rushed to uh, an army hospital in Heidelberg. Uh, the best army neurosurgeons were brought in. Uh, the president even ordered that the, the very best surgeon from the States was immediately put on a plane to fly to Germany to be with him. But it was quickly, quickly determined that his situation uh, was, if not terminal, uh, not to be improved. It, his neck was broken and he was going to be a paralytic the rest of his life. And his wife came to join him. His wife Beatrice, immediately upon hearing the news, hopped a plane and came to Europe and was at his side uh, for what would be the last uh, week of his life uh, in December 1945. And as it happened, he spoke his last words to her. One of the last things he said she recorded uh, in her notebooks later, uh, while she had been quietly alone with him in their hospital room reading to him, uh, he spoke out from his cloud of medication and said very clearly and rather loudly, I guess I wasn't good enough. He didn't say anything more for a while after that, uh, and she simply recorded it in her book, but later interpreted it to mean that he was disappointed, very disappointed, not to have, as he'd hoped, uh, that last great moment of, of dying, that last bullet in the last battle of the last war, uh, and, and rather to die in bed, paralyzed, like a child in a sense, was instead of a coronation for Patton, a rebuke, if not from God, then, then from the fates. And she imagined that he truly was going through um, uh, a sorrowful, if not ashamed moment in the last, last few minutes or moments of his life. General George Patton died at 5.45 p.m. on the 21st of December, 1945. And sadly, one of his three children discovered the news of his death by spotting a newspaper headline at New York's Grand Central Station. It simply said, Patton dies quietly in sleep. The directive of Eisenhower was that all American soldiers who died in Europe would be buried in Europe. Uh, and therefore, Patton was not brought back to the States to be buried. Initially, Beatrice resisted this idea, but then quickly realized that her husband would have wanted to be buried where his own men lay. And uh, it was decided that he would be buried at Ham Cemetery just outside Luxembourg. Initially, he was buried among the white crosses, simply one, one in a row, but in the months and years after the war, his cross was so often visited by tourists and returning veterans that uh, it began to uh, trample down the, the grass surrounding his cross, and so it was moved to the front. And the impression it gives to a visitor today is of uh, an officer reviewing his passing troops for Patton's cross uh, is alone, about 20 feet in front of the larger mass of crosses at Ham Cemetery. 
General Patton was buried in the drizzle of a foggy December morning on the day before Christmas. He joined 5,000 other fallen heroes of the Third Army who were also buried at Ham Cemetery under their crosses and stars of David. But almost immediately, he was again surrounded by controversy. Allegations surfaced that there was no proper inquest, no proper investigation into his death, and speculation mounted that he'd been assassinated and that the truth of his death had been covered up. It was even uh, proposed that maybe Stalin had hoped to, to kill Patton before Patton created some kind of political groundswell against uh, the Russians and against particularly the Red Army and its refusal to relinquish the occupied lands of Eastern Europe. Uh, Beatrice Patton, who had considerable family means behind her, hired her own investigators and was persuaded to her own satisfaction, at least, that indeed the accident was simply that. Is it a case that the controversy arose because there was no proper investigation or inquiry into his death? There was some lack of, of uh, investigation, some lack of paperwork. Uh, there was an, uh, an ambiguity as to who the actual driver was and, and who the witnesses were. And these kinds of uh, holes in any sort of uh, inquest tend to bring about suspicions. And because Patton was a controversial figure, those suspicions were naturally quick to appear. Following his death, Beatrice Patton returned to America and arrived in Washington late on Christmas Day. She brought her children and grandchildren small gifts from Europe, and in the weeks that followed, her life returned to a sad normality. But in those weeks, she also took steps to lay to rest her husband's affair with Jean Gordon, and her actions would have tragic results. Beatrice had a last bit of business to take care of after uh, her husband's death. She arranged through a family uh, intermediary to meet her rival, Jean Gordon, at a hotel room in Boston. Uh, the cousin that arranged it accompanied uh, Beatrice into the room and Jean and reported later that Beatrice raised her finger and cursed Jean to her dying days. And the cousin who told this story said later that there was such malevolence and tension in the room that he ran out of the room in fear and left the two women alone together. Uh, we therefore don't know what else went on in that room, but Jean Gordon, uh, it has to be said, uh, about two weeks later, committed suicide in her apartment in New York City and therefore brought the chapter of their story, Jean and George's, to an end. And she left a suicide note. There were rumors around the family uh, that a suicide note had been found and quickly destroyed in which Jean was writing to her aunt Beatrice, saying, uh, I will get to him first. Uh, Beatrice would never admit to such a note uh, if she heard it uh, or knew of it. She uh, didn't let on. But uh, certainly there was considerable animosity and tension between these two women, and uh, it went with both of them to their respective graves. In the following years, Beatrice Patton travelled throughout America and Europe accepting awards on Patton's behalf and dedicating buildings, streets, parks and plaques in his name. Then, in 1952, her daughter died of heart failure at the age of 41. And, less than 12 months later, in 1953, Beatrice Patton tumbled from a horse during a fox hunt and she died instantly. Beatrice had written a secret note to her children uh, asking them to somehow arranged for her reburial next to her husband in Luxembourg. This was against 
the rules because the cemetery, all the military cemeteries in Europe, and especially the one at Luxembourg, were reserved for the fallen soldiers. Uh, if every family member were allowed to to go there, there simply wouldn't be room in these in these uh, cemeteries. But what happened uh, was after Beatrice was cremated, her daughter and son traveled to Europe and very quietly and discreetly brought some of her ashes into the cemetery and sprinkled them over the cemetery of George Patton. And Beatrice's daughter, who actually did the, the sprinkling of uh, those ashes, often said later that as she did so, uh, a quote from the Bible came to her and stuck in her mind. And uh, that quote, I can't tell you exactly where it's from, but it was that they were swifter than lions and they were stronger than eagles. And that's how she felt about her parents. They were swifter than lions and stronger than eagles, and they should indeed lie together. With the death of George Patton, America lost its most flamboyant and colorful military commander. His was a complex character based on discipline, toughness, and self-sacrifice, and above all, incorporating the exuberance and the brashness that characterized his style of command. From boyhood, Patton wrote and spoke of trying to compensate for his inability with an appearance of confidence and swagger and capability. That is, with an appearance of the man as we know him today, with the pistols and the shiny helmet and the profanity and the boots and spurs. These were a costume. These were an impersonation of a man he wanted to be. He became that man. War made him that man. And yet, I think there is some sadness in the fact that the mask that he set out to create became real. It's rather like a piece of metal worked too long in the forge. It becomes brittle. It becomes hard. And by the end of World War II, this man of great energy and great youthful vitality became very suddenly and abruptly old. That electric motor, which spun between those two poles, very suddenly burned out. General Eisenhower said of Patton that his greatest virtue was also his greatest fault, namely his audacity. But it was that boldness and daring that enabled Patton to lead more than half a million men of the Third Army in their campaign across Europe, a campaign marked by great initiative and a disregard for classic military rules. Patton saw himself, I think, always in process. He was always trying to grow as a leader. He was trying to educate himself about mechanization between the wars. He was always willing to throw out yesterday's tactics to try something else. He preferred maneuver over the old frontal assaults. He was very progressive and very thoughtful in, uh, in a professional sense. Personally, he was very childish and, and often didn't seem to grow past the, 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 the arrogant little 12-year-old who decided he was going to be the greatest commander in history. This is the juxtaposition in Patton, the wonderful um, process of, of development and experimentation and flexibility as a commander compared to this at times brittle and uh, simple-minded and um, simplistic child who simply decided that war is the path to glory and I'm going to stick to it. In 1775, almost 170 years before Patton's death, his great-great-great-grandfather fought in the Revolutionary War. Later on, family members would fight in the American Civil War, the Mexican-American War, the First World War, and of course, in World War II. Today, there are many family members still living in America, including his grandson, Robert Patton, 
but only some of the family have continued the Patton military tradition. George Patton and his wife Beatrice had three children. Uh, his grandchildren, by his daughters, all became uh, career military officers, Army and Navy. Uh, the children of his son, my father, uh, did not become uh, military uh, men or military wives. Um, although my father, George S. Patton IV, uh, fought in Korea and three tours in Vietnam and retired as a uh, highly decorated major general, uh, his namesake, my brother, uh, George S. Patton V, is, uh, works at a farm. He's mentally retarded and uh, engages in Special Olympics in the United States and is a, a, an outdoorsman and yet is, is, is uh, someone who is very much, um, I think, a man who grows rather than destroys as his grandfather might have been. He is, uh, in that sense, like my younger brother, who is an environmentalist, uh, and my younger sister uh, is an actress and theater director. My older sister is a Roman Catholic nun. Uh, the Pattons are uh, Protestants, but she converted and is now a Benedictine nun and is dedicated to uh, understanding and perhaps um, uh, evening out the militaristic side of the family and, and contributing now to a more pacifist uh, way of looking at the world. Myself, I'm a writer uh, and uh, I've written a book, a book about my family which is about Patton and about many Pattons and about my own struggle to understand this, this military family that I come from. Um, and uh, if I might make a generalization in, in pursuing the arts of writing or theater or environmentalism or farming or even religion, there is something which kind of compensates the military side of the family and maybe we're kind of evening out that balance that uh, General Patton with his fame and his accomplishments so strongly tipped one way. Now we'll try to bring the scale back to the other side. It's 50 years since George Patton fought his war. 50 years since that sweep across Europe. A campaign that would liberate a continent and create the American legend of old blood and guts. At seven years old, little Georgie Patton announced to his family that he was going to be the greatest general in American history. I don't think he could have realized then the degree to which that announcement has been made true. He today is ranked among the greatest American military leaders, among the greatest battlefield performers of World War II, and really is one of the eminent folk heroes of American history.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.